Baltimore Colts fans still grieve over the night of March the 28th, 1984. For under the cover of darkness on that night, Colts owner Robert Ursay hired a moving company to clean out the football team's offices and to drive their equipment to Indianapolis. A sports franchise literally snuck out of town in the middle of the night. Ursay relocated his team to Indiana in the middle of the night to avoid negative publicity. He said later, the press were hounding my family for two years and I wasn't about to take it anymore. That's also why Paul left Thessalonica. Paul's time in Thessalonica had been brief but blessed. He had preached the gospel there and had been there just three short weeks. And yet he had seen great success in the ministry. Acts 17 verse 4 tells us that a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Thessalonica was one place where the good news traveled fast. Paul's ministry, though, was so popular that the Jews there in the town became jealous. And they began hounding Paul and his pals. A mob came to arrest him. And when they found that Paul was gone, they arrested his host, a man named Jason, and drug him before the city council. The whole situation was so dicey, so dangerous for this new church that like the cults, Paul and Silas were smuggled out of town under the cover of darkness. The work was interrupted before it had really gotten started. But because of the power of the gospel, a healthy church had been born in Thessalonica. And yet Paul knew that there were issues there that still needed to be addressed. That's why, because he felt that the believers were under-equipped, that's why to shore up what was lacking, he sent back to Thessalonica Timothy and Silas, while he traveled on to Athens, probably to celebrate the big bulldog victory. (laughs) Six months later, Timothy and Silas rejoined Paul in Corinth, and they reported on the status of the Thessalonian church. It was 52 AD when Paul penned his first letter to the Thessalonians. Paul begins his letter with a familiar greeting. It prefaces all of Paul's letters. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two ladies were talking together on a bus one day when one asked the other, What are you reading? The lady replied, It's a Christian book that my friend gave me. She said it changed her life. Oh, really? What's it about? The woman obviously had just begun to read the book, and so she opened up to the table of contents, and she sort of listed a few of the chapter titles. Well, it says here it's about discipline, and it's about love, and it's about grace. The other woman interrupted, what's grace? The lady sort of shook her head and said, I don't know. I haven't gotten to grace yet. Tragically, but I know a lot of Christians who have been believers perhaps for a long time, but still haven't gotten to grace. That's so tragic. They don't understand that God's love can't be earned. It can't be deserved. It's received by simple faith. If you still haven't gotten to grace, realize this is where Paul starts. This is the starting point. You can't really know God's peace until you've embraced God's grace. 
In the rest of chapter 1, Paul gives thanks to God for the Thessalonians. In verse 3, he mentions three traits that were true of these believers. Their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. R.C. Lucas calls faith, hope, and love apostolic shorthand for genuine Christianity. Healthy Christians are characterized by their faith, by their hope, and by their love. Here he mentions their work of faith. Understand, serving the Lord is more than just performing tasks. It's more than just working through a to-do list. Our works need to be coupled with faith. It's a work of faith. When you work for God, anticipate God to work through you. He'll take your five loaves, your two fish, and He'll work a miracle of multiplication. Trust God to infuse His energy into your efforts and multiply His ministry. And make sure your labor for the Lord is a labor of love. You see, ministry is more than just doing your duty. It's putting legs to your love. Our serving God should be a tangible expression of our love for Him and our love for others. It should come from our heart. It should be a labor of love. And then we also should possess a patient hope. You know, for years I watched my dad endure difficulties at work, turn down other job offers, save his vacation with the hope of a bountiful retirement. You know, a future hope can help you endure a present stress. Heaven is that hope for us that enables us to live patiently in the here and now. We can endure difficulty. We can turn down temptation because we're waiting for something better. Our patience of hope. I hope this is true of your life. When people write about you, when they think of you, do they think of your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope? In verses 5 through 6, Paul recalls how the gospel came to the Thessalonians, not only in word, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit had supplied these believers in Thessalonica an incredible joy, even in the face of intense persecution. You know, we forget that the first century Christians chose Jesus, even though it made them targets for persecution. In their day, it cost to follow the Lord, and yet multitudes of people were converted nonetheless. In fact, it was in Thessalonica where the Jewish leaders accused Paul and Silas of having turned the world upside down for Jesus. Imagine the whole world. Could it be that there is something attractive about a commitment that costs? To choose Jesus was to encounter persecution and yet people were signing up left and right. Could it be That there's something attractive about a commitment that costs. Are we more inclined to live for something if we know it's worth dying for? I think so. Where the costs are steep, the commitment runs deep. This is why it is a grave mistake for us to water down the demands of discipleship. To try to make the gospel more palatable to the masses. The plan backfires. More people are turned off then turned on to watered-down, wimped-out Christianity. We need to be up front with folks. Being a Christian will cost you, but it's worth the cost. The church in Thessalonica became an example to the churches in Philippi and then in Corinth. Verses 6 through 8 indicate that the church had both a local impact, 
a regional impact, and then a worldwide impact. I think this could be the prayer for every church. I know I'm praying this for our church here in our area. I want us to impact locally, the Atlanta area, our neighborhood. I want us to have an impact upon our region here in the southeastern United States. And I want our church to even impact the world. That's my prayer. I hope it's yours. The Thessalonians' testimony is summed up in verses 9 and 10. Paul writes of their conversion, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In 1989, Philip Brewster a missionary in Latin America, was standing next to a chipped chalkboard teaching a seminary course. One of the students, one of the locals, handed him a stick of chalk. And when Philip looked down at the chalk, he could tell that it was it had an odd texture to it. The student offered an explanation. He said, when we gave up our idols, we broke them up. Now we use them for chalk. What a notion. Their idols had been transformed into tools that taught Jesus. The Thessalonians had also turned from idols to wait and serve the risen Lord Jesus. Remember, the early Christians came out of a polytheistic society. And the great danger for them was to think that they could simply add Jesus to their long list of other gods. Paul makes it clear, to come to Jesus, you must turn from idols. People today still have their idols. We call them toys today. But if Jesus is not Lord of all, He is not Lord at all. You see, an American idol is anything that you love more than Jesus Christ. People mistakenly think that Jesus can be one part of their life while they remain in control of the other parts. Hey, Jesus wants to permeate every area of your life. He wants to control all of your life. He refuses to be an add-on or an accessory. He is Lord, and that means boss. You see, being a Christian is not just embracing Jesus as Savior, but also as Lord. Chapter 1 closes by noting that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Verse 10 is another reason why I believe the church will be spared the great tribulation. Jesus promises to deliver us from the wrath that is coming upon this world. And the rapture of the church will be our rescue. I believe the rapture is the great escape that God will provide His people. And it occurs before the final seven years of judgment. Paul's trip through Macedonia had been a wild ride. His first stop was Philippi where he was arrested, beaten and thrown in prison. But undaunted in his boldness to share the gospel. Paul had begun his Macedonian journey, we're told, in much conflict. His next stop was Thessalonica, a hundred miles down the road. And in chapter 2, Paul describes his ministry among the Thessalonians. He defends the integrity of his ministry. He says there was no deceit, no uncleanness, no guile, no flattery, no covetousness in his methods. When Mark Twain wrote his famous short story, The Celebrated Jumping Frog, he dedicated it to John Smith. 
A man, Twain wrote, of manifold virtues. Later, though, Twain admitted that there was no particular person named John Smith, but he knew that John and Smith were the two most popular names in the English language. And if only the John Smiths of the world bought his book, that alone would make it a bestseller. And so Twain was counting on the power of flattery and a little deception to sell his message, but not Paul. Paul would not resort to those lesser methods. Paul was a straight shooter. Reminds me of the pastor who was good. His sermons were good. Boy, they entertained. But his life betrayed his message. Someone said, when he was in the pulpit, his congregation wished he would never leave it. And when he was out of the pulpit, they wished he would never enter it again. Again, not so with Paul. His methods were true to his message. In verse 6, Paul says that as an apostle, he could have thrown his weight around. He could have insisted on special treatment. Instead, though, he cared for the Thessalonians with a mother's tenderness, with a gentleness and kindness. On his first visit, Paul poured out his life into the Thessalonians. He didn't even ask for a salary to support himself while he was there ministering among them. Verse 9 tells us that he labored night and day to keep from being a burden to the Thessalonians. In other words, Paul was willing to moonlight in order to help spread the light. He was a tent maker by trade, and he was willing to construct a few tents on the side to pay his expenses. Paul says in verses 10 through 12, You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you should walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul says there are a lot of similarities here between being a good parent, and being a good pastor. I've noticed that myself. Both, if done right, are selfless jobs, that's for sure. In verse 10, Paul says that he's given them no reason to doubt his sincerity. In verse 11, he says that he's exhorted and comforted and charged the believers. In other words, Paul gets in their face when they're wrong. That's exhort. He stands by their side when they're weak. That's comfort. And he stays one step ahead when they get distracted. That's charged. This is what a good pastor does for his congregation. And this is what a good parent does for his child. He gets in their face. He stands by their side. And he stays one step ahead. In verse 13, Paul commends the Thessalonians for receiving his message as the word of God. And notice he says of God's word, which also effectively works in you who believe. Boy, the word of God works. Do you know that? Mix it with a little faith and God's word will work in your life. Paul was only in Thessalonica for three weeks and yet a vibrant church had been born and had grown. How else could it have happened? apart from the power of God's Word. In Psalm 19, verse 10, God's Word is compared with honey, and for a good reason. Did you know that honey is the only food that never spoils? 
And this is why the church in Thessalonica had grown. Paul had to leave, but he had left behind the power of the word of God. Times of persecution can cause feelings of isolation. Oh, I must be the only one going through this ordeal. Paul assures the Thessalonians that they're not the only church to suffer for the sake of the gospel. He reminds them of the Judean churches who had suffered at the hands of their own countrymen. The Jews killed Jesus, their own prophets, and they had persecuted Paul and the apostles as well. You know, guys, when you live for Jesus, persecution will be par for the course. You can't escape it. Persecution had made the Thessalonians feel forsaken and forgotten. But though Paul had to leave them in person, they were still very much in his heart. Paul says in verse 18 that he had tried to visit them on several occasions, but Satan hindered. This Greek word that's translated hindered refers to a road so broken up that travel becomes blocked. Did you know that Satan is able to do that? He's able to block our path at times, to muddle our circumstances, to arrange obstacles to hinder us from making that phone call or visiting that friend or offering that prayer. Sometimes events we chalk up to just coincidence may be spiritual skirmishes that we don't see. We are in a spiritual battle. In verse 19, Paul calls the Thessalonians his crown of rejoicing. The New Testament actually lists five crowns or rewards available to the Christian. I don't know about you, but I want all five. The first is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. That speaks of the incorruptible crown. It goes to the person who's able to discipline their bodies to live a life for God. Revelation 2, verse 10 lists the crown of life. It's given to the person who endures persecution. James 1.12 also gives a crown of life to those who resist temptation. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 mentions a crown of righteousness. It goes to all those who love the Lord's appearing. Did you know there's a crown for rapture watchers? And in chapter 1, uh, in verse, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, The crown of glory goes to the faithful pastor or the faithful shepherd who shepherds the people under his care. And then here, the crown of rejoicing goes to the person who leads other people to Jesus Christ. You see, the Thessalonians were Paul's crown. They were a heavenly reward. Imagine now, standing before God in heaven, standing before the heavenly throng, and someone points over to you, And says, Lord, I want to thank him. I want to thank her. Because if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be here today. Imagine the rush that you would feel if that him or her were you. Can you imagine? It's true. The only thing better than going to heaven is taking somebody with you. Lead another person to Jesus and you are laying up for yourself a crown of rejoicing. Paul loved the Thessalonians so much that he couldn't stand not knowing what had happened to them. He says in chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 that when he went to Athens, 
He sent Timothy back to check on the new church and encourage them in their hardships. It's interesting. Note this. When false doctrine was the problem in a church, Paul sent them a letter. But when persecution was the problem, he sent them a leader. A person. You see, nothing fortifies a faith under fire more than a friend who will walk by your side through it. Timothy was that friend to the Thessalonians. Paul had warned them. Now Timothy reminds them persecution is as much a part of the Christian life as is joy and love and fellowship and worship and witness. Paul will later write to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, and he'll say, All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's not a promise we quote often. And it's not a promise we quote for comfort. But it is a promise from God nonetheless. If you live godly, if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, it'll bring some form of persecution. I read where daily across this globe, 400 people, 400 people on a daily basis are murdered and martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. That's one person dies a martyr's death every four minutes. That means a dozen people will have died for Christ before we finish with our Bible study tonight. It should prompt us to pray for the suffering church. The freedom we have in America is the exception rather than the rule. Jesus promised his followers that they would be eternally blessed, amazingly happy, and in constant trouble. When Timothy returned with good news... Paul was thankful. Paul wants to come to Thessalonica. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, that he's praying for the opportunity to come in person and to perfect their faith. In order, in other words, to shore up their weaknesses and to help them mature. You know, Paul is a great example for us. When we lead a person to the Lord, our job is not over. Far from it. Saving faith is a beginning faith. But a strong faith has many components that have to be acquired over time. Patience and knowledge and virtue all must be added to that beginning faith. And it's our job to stick with that new convert, to help build them up in their faith. Those four folks that came this morning, we should be praying for them and encouraging them and standing by their side and helping them in any way that we can. Paul prays for his friends night and day, he says, and he stays with them to the end. One of the most pressing concerns for every Christian is discerning God's will for their life. Have you ever wondered, Lord, what is your will for me? Anybody ever wondered that? Well, I can't imagine. That's one of our most pressing concerns. We're always praying, God, what job should I take? What school should I attend? Which girl should I date? Of course, I've decided that a long time ago, but some of you might be wondering that. In what city should I live? We're asking these questions all the time. And that's why I perk up whenever I find a verse that tells me what God's will is for my life. Young people, if you want to know what God's will for your life is. Old people, if you want to know what God's will for your life is. All people, if you want to know what God's will for your life is. Perk up. Chapter 4 verse 3 tells us, For this is the will of God, your 
sanctification. Here's an issue on which we can be certain about God's will. Our purity. It's ironic. We care about the what's and the where's of life while God cares about the who we are and why we do what we do. The who's and the why's. It said, God is more concerned about who you are than what you do, and He is more concerned about what you do than where you do it. If you really want to walk in God's will, you'll be concerned with your sanctification, your set-apartness, your devotion and purity before God. Is your devotion thorough and sincere? And God's will is especially concerned about your sexual purity. Take note of that. Verses 3 and 4 read, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Don't tell me you've prayed about it. And God says it's okay for you to have sex with your boyfriend or with your girlfriend. It's not God's will for you to live with someone you're not married to. That's not God's will. We're told right here that's not God's will. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 says that God's will is your purity. And particularly your sexual purity. Verse 5 through 7 takes it further. Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Understand, God created sex to be enjoyed by one man and one woman, committed to each other in a lifelong marital relationship. When sex is reduced to a weekend excursion or to uncommitted carnality, it degrades the participants. There is no honor in casual sex. There is no esteem. In fact, nothing damages the human psyche more than allowing yourself to be used to gratify someone else's sexual lusts. It degrades you. It dehumanizes you. It turns you into an object, not a person. You don't see it at the time, but afterwards, the guilt, the shame, it all sets in. Sex was meant to produce a renewed feeling of commitment and appreciation with the person you've married, not the hollow emptiness of exploitation by being used by someone who hasn't made a commitment to you and later won't really care that much about you. You know, it is no accident that the sexual revolution has spawned a generation of adults that suffer from shattered self-esteem No self-worth. Poor self-image. Why? There is no honor in casual sex. There is only shame and degradation. Verse 9 is interesting. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. I like that. Love for one another is the instinctive desire of the heart of a true Christian. 
Paul says, I have no need to write to you about this. Your heart should tell you. God has taught you to love one another. You know, rabbits don't take hopping lessons. Did you know that? Birds don't take flying lessons. Fish don't need swimming classes, even though they do travel in schools. Some things just come natural. And so it is with a Christian. Followers of Jesus don't need to be taught and told to love. It's our birthmark. It's been birthed in us when we're born again by the Holy Spirit. Love for God, love for others is the natural desire of our hearts. Verse 9 tells us how to love. Verse 11 tells us how to live. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. In a day of what I like to call militant Christianity, where we as Christians are constantly being called on to join this protest or that boycott or picket every injustice that rolls along, verse 11 offers what I think is a needed balance. Paul says that our goal as Christians is to lead lives that are peaceful and responsible and non-confrontational. He tells us to mind our own business, work hard, make an honest living, be a winsome witness. Certainly battles will come. And when they do, we shouldn't back down. But we don't always have to go out looking for a battle. Here's what bothers me. Christians today are known more for what they're against than for what they're for. That's tragic. We're known for our don'ts rather than for our do's. In many conservative circles, a quiet Christian is an oxymoron, and it shouldn't be. I'm certain there are people who have been turned off by our rhetoric who could have been won by our love. Pushy Christians generally push people away. That's why we need to learn to be gracious. Let me read it again. Learn to live a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. And then in verse 13, Paul states, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. The New Testament uses the idiom of sleep to speak of deceased believers. In John chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus said of Lazarus, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. Of course, we learn later in the passage that Lazarus had been dead for four days. Understand, it's not the believer's spirit that sleeps. Nowhere in the scripture does the Bible teach soul sleep or some form of suspended animation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 8 makes it clear that for the Christian to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When a believer dies, his spirit goes straight into the presence of God. Aren't you glad? It is the body that's snoozing, not the spirit. Our spirit is with Jesus. And it's the Christian's hope that one day these bodies will be resurrected. 
I believe that everything in this world that has been touched and contaminated by sin will one day be redeemed and restored by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that includes our corruptible and our mortal bodies. And Paul describes when this metamorphosis will take place. When Jesus returns to rapture his church, the spirits of those who are in heaven will come with him and they will be reunited with their resurrected bodies. Verse 16 says, the dead in Christ will rise first. Literally, our bodies will be resurrected. They will vacate the graves. The cremated ashes of others will be gathered for, from wherever and, you know, they have been scattered and wherever they have been placed and they'll be reassembled and those bodies will be resurrected. Verse 16 provides the play-by-play, the rapture play-by-play right here. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first because they've got six feet further to go. It's true. Jesus will let out a shout. Yeah! Scared you, didn't I? I don't know if it'll be a hee-haw. But it'll probably startle you. I'm I'm waiting for a real shout. I'm waiting for something I can hear. We'll hear the voice of an archangel. And again, I don't know what that voice will sound like either. But remember, the angels spoke at the Messiah's first coming. They praised the Lord before the shepherds, remember? It's fitting that the angels will again speak when he returns, speak praises to God. And then we'll hear a trumpet blast. And in ancient times, trumpets were used to send messages. In fact, the Jews begin their new year with the Feast of Trumpets. The priest blows the ram's horn and it signals the end of the harvest. And when the workers in the fields heard the trumpet blast, they left their tools, left the fields, and they went up to the temple to worship. The Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah is a type of the rapture. For when we hear the trumpet blast, we'll know that the end time, this harvest of souls will be over. That our work on earth will be finished. We'll lay down our tools and we'll enter into the heavenly temple to worship our Lord Jesus forever. Verse 17 adds, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. The expression to be caught up is the Greek word harpazo. And when we translate it into the Latin, it's the word raptus, from which we get our word rapture. The Greek word harpazo has five meanings. You might want to jot these down. It can mean to snatch away speedily. To seize by force. To claim for oneself. To move to a new place and to rescue from danger. And all five meanings of the word apply to the rapture of the church. When Jesus returns, He'll snatch us up in the twinkling of an eye. He'll claim us as His own. He'll bring us home to heaven. And He'll rescue us from the great tribulation that will rock this world in judgment. What a day it will be when suddenly Jesus will beam us up. 
You'll hear that shout, you'll hear that voice, then you'll hear the trumpet blast, and then suddenly your body will begin to dematerialize. And when it reassembles, it will do so in its heavenly, flawless, perfected form. A body fit and capable and able of living forever in heaven with Jesus. What a metamorphosis. What a transformation that will be. Once we're raptured, we'll never again leave his presence. That's our great hope. And that's why Paul tells us in verse 18, comfort one another with these words. Chapter 5 opens, but concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Now, Jesus spoke of the rapture in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. No one knows the day or the hour of the rapture. But according to Paul here in chapter 5, God does expect us to know the times and the seasons. For God has given us indicators. He's given us certain signs of the end times to let us know that we're getting close to the Lord's return. And here he discusses one such sign. Verses 2 and 3. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Now notice this phrase, the day of the Lord. It is a crucial term when it comes to end times prophecy. Today, understand, is the day of man. Mankind is running the show on planet earth. Man is having his say, doing things his own way. But the day is coming when mankind will be shut up and God will have his say on the fallen planet. The day of the Lord is that period of time when God will bring judgment upon this wicked world and restore it to its former glory. The day of the Lord begins with the rapture of the church and it ends with the new heaven and the new earth in between There's seven years of great tribulation, followed by a thousand years of the kingdom age of God's reign upon the earth. But notice here in verse 3, the day of the Lord is signaled with the promise of peace. A false peace, a sinister shalom, will lull the world into a false hope. Men will think that a glory age has begun. Other passages indicate that the Antichrist will make a covenant with the nation Israel. Isaiah 28 verse 18 refers to it as an agreement with hell. When it seems that peace has finally come to the Middle East, sudden destruction will surprise us. Us. Not me. Not us. (laughs) Because we will be raptured out of here before that tribulation period will begin. And this is why Paul says, the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. The rapture will surprise the world. It will occur at a time when it is least expected. You've heard the expression, what goes up must come down. The rapture is just the opposite. When judgment comes down, the church goes up. And this is why we need to watch and be sober. Don't get lulled to sleep. Don't believe that it will always be business as usual on planet earth. It won't be. The end is coming and Jesus is coming for his church. 
Are you ready for Jesus to snatch you away? Don't be surprised when you start to rise. And as the end gets closer, the devil will intensify his attacks. That's why we need to wake up. That's why we need to be vigilant. That's why we need to put on our spiritual armor. That's why we need to all be a rapture watcher. Paul closes by instructing the Thessalonians to respect their spiritual leaders. Verses 12 and 13 tell us to do four things for those leaders. Recognize them. Esteem them very highly. Love them for their work's sake. And be at peace among yourselves. Trust me. Nothing breaks a pastor's heart quicker than bickering among the believers. And nothing encourages a pastor more than when the flock is friendly to one another. The best way to bless your pastor is to love him and to get along with each other. Chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, encourage the church to stay strong. And here's how. We exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. What great advice. Warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. In verses 16 through 18, Paul tells us the attitude that we need to maintain. Continual rejoicing, taking our joy from Jesus, constant praying, perpetual thankfulness. Notice verse 18 says, to be thankful... Not for everything. Notice that. It doesn't say be thankful for everything. That would be unnatural at times. That would be impossible at other times. How can I be thankful for harm and hardship? But that's not what it tells us. Paul writes, be thankful not for everything, but in everything. For no matter the situation I'm in, I can thank God. That it comes with a purpose. And that he's going to comfort me and strengthen me. Even in the midst of that situation. I can't be thankful for everything. But I can be thankful in everything. Paul issues an important command in verse 19. He says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Through a lack of faith. We can fail to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and quench His work. We can douse the fire that He's trying to kindle in our hearts or in our church. We can hinder, we can limit the Spirit's work in and through us. But verses 20 and 21 strike a needed balance. Remember, the Corinthian church emphasized spiritual experience over scriptural exposition. On the other hand, it seems here that the Thessalonians focused on the scripture to the exclusion of the spirit. It seems that the Corinthians were the Pentecostals and the Thessalonians were the Baptists. But there needs to be a proper balance, like we find in verses 20 and 21. Paul writes, Do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good. Spiritual gifts are real, and they are for today, and they shouldn't be despised. God does speak to us through words of prophecy. Just because a gift can be abused or misused, 
Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Gifts are real and they're for today and we need them in the church. On the other hand, don't be gullible. Test the gift. Is it really from God or just from human imagination? Don't quench the Holy Spirit, but don't be gullible either. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Great balance for you and me. There's an old adage that says it best. A church with the word, but not the spirit, will dry up. A church with the spirit, but not the word, will blow up. But a church with the spirit working through the word will grow up. And that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. Paul closes with an encouraging statement in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. God is faithful. Whoever he calls, he also equips. That even means you. It even means me. Aren't we glad? And there we have Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. In two weeks, we'll study Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians.